0: Turn in your Bibles, please, this morning to Matthew 28, Matthew chapter 28. If you're using a Bible in the pew, that can be found on page 1062, 1062. The words are familiar, I'm sure, to most, if not all of us, and yet I pray that God would bring fresh light out of his familiar word for us this morning. Going to be reading verses 16 through 20. Hear what follows for what it is the Word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Six points to the sermon this morning. Six points. A little bit of surprise, alright, good. They're all alliterated though, so make it easy for you to remember, hopefully. First of all, the comprehensive character of the Great Commission. The comprehensive character of the Great Commission. Secondly, the constitution of the Great Commission. What actually constitutes the Great Commission? What is it that Jesus is instructing his church to do? Thirdly, some complications with why we do not see the Great Commission being fulfilled in our day. And then by way of corrective, the context, the confidence that Jesus provides to us as his disciples, and then some concluding remarks. So comprehensive constitution, complications, context, confidence, and conclusion. if Christianity depended upon you in the next generation, if Christianity depended upon First United Reformed Church of Chino in the next generation, would there be Christianity in the next generation? You see, that question puts you in the sandals of the disciples as Jesus is speaking to them here. Think of the situation in that day. There are no denominations. There are no seminaries. There are no Christian schools. There are no Christian institutions. You are all there is. And Christ speaks these words to you. You see, you need to take ownership of the Great Commission, as if you were the only Christians alive. Christ here sets forth an obligation, not an option. And my purpose this morning is to examine the Great Commission with you, and in so doing, encourage and challenge you to be faithful in its discharge. First of all then, the comprehensive character of the Great Commission. Note the language, the universal language, all the alls in the text. All authority, all nations, all things, all ways. It bespeaks the comprehensive character of the Great Commission. The Great Commission aims at the comprehensive application of Christ's authority over men through conversion. Let me say that again. The Great Commission aims at the comprehensive application of Christ's authority over men through conversion. Jesus Christ here claims unlimited authority in every area of life and in every realm, in heaven and on earth. Abraham Kuyper, our forebearer, put it this way, with which words with which I'm sure you're familiar, there is not one square inch of all creation which God does not say, mine. John Calvin, for example, said this of these words. He, that is Jesus, had to hold supreme and truly divine power of command to declare that eternal life was promised in his name, that the whole globe was held under his sway, and that a doctrine was published which would subdue all high seeking and bring the whole human race to humility. Briefly, they were to lead all nations into the obedience of faith by publishing the gospel everywhere and that they should seal and certify their teaching by the mark of the gospel, the comprehensive character of the Great Commission. Now, as you know, these are the closing words of the gospel according to Matthew, but the opening words are immensely significant as well. because. Chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew tells us, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that significant? Well, what was the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3? That God would bless him and all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And Jesus is the son of Abraham. And the Great Commission is the means by which the promise to Abraham is fulfilled and the blessings for all nations come. But, (laughs) excuse me, it's incumbent upon us in examining the text to determine exactly what it is that Jesus Christ is instructing his church to do. What constitutes the Great Commission? What is it that you are to do as a response to Jesus speaking these words to First United Reformed Church of Chino this morning. Well, you may know that there are uh, three participles in the text. Look at the text. There's go, which is actually a participle going, all right? There's baptizing, all right? And there's teaching. Many in the history of the Christian church and in the Christian church today as well have focused on one of these three participles as constituting the Great Commission. There are those, for example, who focus on that first participle, go or going. For them, evangelism is the be-all and end-all of the church. They don't really care about Christian education. They don't pay a lot of attention to worship matters, liturgical matters. Evangelism, that's it. Get people saved. It's an evangelistic beehive of activity to get people into the ark of the church and on their way to heaven. On the other hand, there are those churches who focus on the second participle, baptizing. For them, liturgy is what's all important. Worship, sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, liturgical practice, smells and bells, one thing or the other. And then, of course, there's the third, teaching. And maybe this comes a little bit closer to home, in our circles. We emphasize doctrine. We want biblically sound, expositional preaching. We want confessional churches. Teaching. The problem is that none of those three participles are what constitute the Great Commission. And for whatever emphasis has been laid upon them in various segments of the Christian church, in the past or in the present, they're missing the point. Look at the text and what the main main verbal command is. The main verbal command is not going, it's not baptizing, it's not teaching. It's make disciples. Make disciples. That's the main verbal command. That is what constitutes the Great Commission. And that's what he wants you, and that's what he wants me, and that's what he wants his disciples to do. We are to make disciples. Disciples making disciples. And the other three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, are how we are to make disciples. Get it? All right? So let's get straight on what constitutes the Great Commission make disciples and how are we to go about making disciples? We make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Now, discipling, how should we define that? Well, I like to put it this way. Discipling is turning people from sinful rebellion against God Two, a faithful commitment to Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson, who uh, another one of our forefathers uh, of a prior day, uh, put it this way on this text. The term make disciples places somewhat more stress on the fact that the mind, as well as the heart and will, must be one for God. In other words, it's designed to win the obedience in all of life of the disciple. That's what constitutes the Great Commission. Contrary to a very contemporary practice promoted in North American evangelicalism today, which is simply to get people to make decisions. We're not to make, get people to make decisions. We're to get people and make them disciples. And how are we to do that? We're to do it by going, baptizing, and teaching. Let's look at each one of those, all right? Now. If you're a very good student of the Bible, you'll immediately recognize that when Jesus says you're to make disciples by going, this is a 180 degree reversal of how he instructed his nation, his people, Israel, in the Old Testament as to how they were to relate to the peoples round about them. To explain this, turn with me if you would. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want you to see this very important point One which many of us need to understand, appreciate, and appropriate in our practice, in our church lives. In the Old Testament, how did God instruct His people to relate to the peoples out there, the nations round about them? Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, all right, um, in verse uh, 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord has commanded me, that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what? Great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So what is God instructing his people, Israel, to do in terms of relating to the nations and the peoples round about them out there outside Israel? He says you are to segregate yourself from those peoples. You are to separate yourself from those peoples. And you are to live according to my word. You are to follow my precepts, my statutes, my word, which I've given to you. And that will be your display to the peoples round about you. And when they see that, they will come like a moth to a flame. So the instruction to Israel with respect to relating to the nations round about them was coming. The nations were to come to them. Now I hope you understand that what Jesus says in the Great Commission is a 180 degree reversal. No longer are you to segregate and separate yourselves from the peoples round about you. No, no more. Now you are to go to the peoples round about you. You are to go to them and make disciples of them. You see, in the Old Testament, it was people came and saw. But now in the New Testament, you are to go. Evangelism is essential component to the church. It's not a list on the agenda of the church or on the budget of the church that is kind of like, you know, one from column A, one from column B, take it or leave it. It's essential. It's how you fulfill the Great Commission. By going. Now, many of us have not quite grasped this yet. I have actually heard people in our churches say, if, and this is no joke, this is virtually verbatim, if people want to hear the gospel, it's preached in our church every Sunday, let them come. See, that would have been fine for Deuteronomy 4. But now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has come and sacrificed himself and been lifted up on the cross, he's drawing all men, all nations to himself. How? By now sending his disciples out, going, no more let them come. No more are we to be isolated from the peoples round about us, segregated from the people. We are to be in the world, but of course, not of the world. Very important emphasis to make if we are to fulfill the Great Commission. So we're to be going. Secondly, we're to be baptizing. Now, I realize, I'm sure there's a font around here, some know you baptize uh, adults and infants in this church, and that's a good thing, but you have to realize that Much of contemporary evangelicalism in North America today does not include this as a vital element in their evangelistic endeavors. If I could give you an example, and I do this only for illustrative sake, we were involved in the last Billy Graham crusade, which was held in New York City. We were involved in that because we wanted to pray that people would get saved, Through that, a lot of attention, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of money was poured into uh, that crusade. And primarily because we wanted to be a referring church. That when people walked the aisle in a Billy Graham crusade, they get referred to churches. We wanted to be one of those churches so that when people came, we could engage in making disciples. We were given a list of probably two dozen people that had been referred to us that had made professions of faith and about whom we were informed that they had become Christians because they made a profession of faith. We followed up on them with mail when we could. We followed up on them with phone calls when we could and where possible I actually met individually with those people. Do you know not one of them had any interest in worship or church? No less discipleship. Not one. Can I tell you in First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse thirteen? You don't have to look it up. But in First Corinthians twelve, verse thirteen, we're told <clears throat> that Christians are baptized into the church. And if I could say to you on the authority God's word today, unless and until evangelism results in somebody being baptized into a Christian church, they ought not to be considered Christians. I don't care how many prayers they've said, I don't care how many aisles they've walked, unless they are baptized into a Christian church, they ought not to be considered a Christian. Now, of course, there are exceptions, thief on the cross, right? But ordinarily, that's how you fulfill the Great Commission. That's how you make disciples. They have to have God's claiming name placed on them. They have to belong to a local body of believers. You can't say, I love Jesus and hate his body. It makes a horrific distortion of the truth of the church. So, going, baptizing, teaching. A little bit closer to home here, again. In our circles, we place great emphasis on teaching, and rightly so. We are a confessional church, we believe in doctrinal fidelity. We believe that sound doctrine leads to sound living, and that's all true. But notice that the Great Commission is given in educational terms. Christian education is essential. And of course, I suspect I'm bringing ice to Eskimos, right, as I talk about Christian education at a United Reformed Church. Our history, our tradition is when our forefathers came here, they planted a church, the very next thing they did was start a Christian school. So let me turn that around to look at it by way of application another angle, if I could. You have an amazing wealth of education, those of you that have been raised in the church, this church. You have family altar devotions around the table, probably never knew a time when you didn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've probably gone to Christian school. You've probably been catechized. You've had faithful ministers present the gospel to you morning and evening, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year. There's no lack of teaching. But let me ask you, what are you doing with all that teaching? What are you doing with all that teaching? I'm sure you know as good Bible students that when God provides blessing to His people, it's never intended to be a cul-de-sac. It's always intended to be a conduit. So, that all that teaching which has been poured into you through Christian parents, through Christian school teachers, through faithful ministers and catechism instructors, it's not intended to be a cul de sac, a dead end, just keeping it all to yourself. It's intended to be a conduit that you share that, that you sh- give that to others. R.B. Kuyper, in his book, The Glorious Body of Christ, has a very fitting illustration of this. If you know the uh, geography of the nation of Israel, you know that up in the north are the mountains of Lebanon, and the snow on those mountains melts and runs down into the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is absolutely beautiful. I was there in 1994 with my wife. You go swimming in the Sea of Galilee, it's beautiful, it's crystal clear, it's pristine, it's cold, often very refreshing. The Galilee is kind of the resort area of Israel. And then at the mouth of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. And that runs down through the nation of Israel and empties into the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is a very popular resort in Israel. I remember when we were preparing to go on our trip, they said, oh, wait till you get in the Dead Sea. You can't sink in the Dead Sea. You float in the Dead Sea. There's so much salt. I got to the Dead Sea, I put my foot in in the water, and it was just oily, salty, gross water. I said, you float in the Dead Sea, I'm going to take a bath. Now the Sea of Galilee is fed by melting snow, and it feeds the Jordan River. The Dead Sea is fed, but it feeds no one. Is the contrast stark? I trust it is. Don't be a cul-de-sac. What are you doing to use your time, your talents, your treasures, to fulfill the Great Commission? I was out yesterday with Food for Life, with Bernie and Eric and Aaron, some other people, there are opportunities. There are opportunities for you here. Thank God for that. Man those, those of you that are retired. Always take the opportunity to say to our retired brothers and sisters, you realize retirement is a vocation, right, it's not a vacation. You're you're the people that have the most to give. The accumulated benefit of all the years are in you. So what are you doing to use your time, your talents, and your treasures to fulfill the Great Commission? Make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. So what are the complications with why we don't see the Great Commission being fulfilled? Well, there are actually a number of them. I'm just going to mention one, for time's sake, this morning. I think it's one that's perhaps most prominent in our circles and most worthy of attention and in need of correction. It's that evangelism is something that is limited to ordained ministers. Now, I'll be the first in agreement with our church order, and of course our pastor Brad would slap my hand if I got out of order, that we define missionaries as ordained men going to preach the word of God where a church has not been established. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But what we have lost in our circles somehow is what's referred to as the office of believer. R.B. Kuiper again, in that book, The Glorious Body of Christ, I commend it to you. It's great devotional reading. Talks about the lost, the, I'm sorry, he calls it the forgotten office, the office of believer. And somehow, what's happened is, as church, as people, we do missions by proxy. That is, we pay and we pray for somebody else to tell others the gospel. Now, when it comes to ordained missionaries, that's fine but your responsibility doesn't end with paying and praying to send missionaries to the field all these fields represented here this morning you have an obligation to share the gospel as well can i can can i tell you what it says in our own catechism you know the Heidelberg where it's talking about the titles of Jesus Christ. It says why is he called Christ and you'll remember the answer because he's anointed with the Holy Spirit To be prophet priest and king And then in its inimitable fashion the catechism just goes on and makes application of that point I just love the catechism for its practical personal pastoral application on all these points of doctrine It asks why are you called a Christian? You remember the answer? Because I share in His anointing to be prophet, priest, and king. The forgotten office of believer. Every believer. And notice, the Heidelberg defines a Christian as someone who has a prophetic responsibility. A priestly and a kingly responsibility. A silent Christian is a contradiction in terms. It betrays the very definition the Heidelberg Catechism gives to a Christian. You see, there's an official preaching of the Gospel, so when a man like Pastor Brad or uh, Pastor Squeers gets up here and is faithful to what is written in this book, Jesus Christ is speaking to His people. And that representative of Jesus Christ is the mouthpiece of Jesus. The Second Helvetic Confession says the preached Word of God is the Word of God. Amen, I agree with that 100%. But there's also an inefficient, not preaching, but relating, telling, speaking, evangelizing the Gospel that every believer has a responsibility for. Then, of course, you get to question and answer 86, right? At the beginning of the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, and it says, why must you do good works? Remember that? It's a long answer. I'm not going to repeat it all, but it ends with this. So that our neighbors might be one to Christ. Isn't that interesting? Notice the perfect balance and harmony of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lips and life. Talk and walk. Perfect balance, like two wings on a plane, keeps it going in the right direction. That's what a Christian is. I asked people, I used to ask my catechumens this when I pastored in Michigan. I would ask them a professor in a faith interviews, and I would ask them in catechism class, I said, do you witness to people on your job or at your school? I witness by my lifestyle. I don't mow the lawn on Sunday. Well, that's good. Did they know why you don't mow the lawn on Sunday? Maybe you're a Mormon. Maybe you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Maybe you're just a nice guy. No. I go to church and don't mow the lawn or fix my car or whatever on Sunday because Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And I love him and want to follow him faithfully according to his word. Lips and life together. We cannot do missions by proxy. <clears throat> we must witness and testify if we are to faithfully discharge the Great Commission. And the Heidelberg Catechism shows us the way. We don't have to go to newfangled seminars or, or whatever. Just open up the Catechism, it's right there. Well, look at the text to some correctives that Jesus uh, presents here. Jesus is a loving Lord, isn't he? I mean, he's just so kind to us. Whenever he wounds, he always heals. Whenever he corrects, he shows the way on the straight path, right? Look at the correctives that are found here. First of all, the context. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Where will you obtain the desire, the wherewithal, the passion, the zeal to tell others the gospel? Right here, in worship. There is an inherent reciprocal relationship between worship and evangelism. John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Gets it right. Worship is to lead to evangelism, evangelism is to lead to worship. Look with me if you will, just so I'd make this point, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and following. Obviously, the author here is speaking to Israelites, right? And he comes to contrasting, uh, to Jewish Christians, sorry. He's contrasting them with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, right? So verse 22, but you, right? Verse 18, you have not come to Mount Sinai. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering i love the nib much better to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly do you realize that's what's going on right now that there are thousands and thousands of angels here that's why in 1 corinthians uh, paul says a woman has to have a sign of authority on her head it's not cultural he says because of the angels i know you're all going to ask me about that afterwards i'll direct you to your pastor <laughs> but let's go on Hebrews 12 all right and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to sprinkle blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel what is it that the author is saying he's saying at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning when you gather you are in the presence of God and God himself comes and calls you into his presence And you are no longer in Chino. The Holy Spirit has come and lifted you up into the presence of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. You are in that heavenly Zion. You are in heaven when you were assembled for corporate worship. And think, think of how we started our service this morning. Grace, mercy, mercy, I can barely say it, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Me, a hell-deserving sinner, comes into the presence of a holy God who is a consuming fire, and he says to me, first thing, grace, mercy, and peace be to you. Man, if that doesn't knock your socks off, nothing will. Rocks my world every time I say it. And then that's not all. We hear God's law as a rule of gratitude. How we are to live pleasing in His sight. And and we hear assurance of pardon each and every week so that we get drilled into the depths of our being. The assurance that God does in fact love us. That He has forgiven us. That He has washed us in His blood. That He has dressed us in garments of His pure righteousness. And He sees us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Then He says, as you depart from My presence, hear My blessing on you, My dearly loved people. And again, we're blessed to be a blessing to go out and to tell others, let me tell you about this God that I just met with. Let me tell you about His love. Let me tell you about His mercy. Let me tell you about His grace. Let me tell you about His consuming fire and wrath if you don't turn from sin. I flee from the wrath to come. I beseech you in the name of Jesus Christ. Come to the foot of the cross and be forgiven. Be reconciled to God. That's what worship is to do compel us out those doors to tell others and then the great end of evangelism is not conversion the great end of evangelism is come join with me in giving this god glory and praise that is due to his name you see the reciprocal relationship You can see this in the Psalms. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you because I want you to see this is not just my enthusiastic delivery here this morning. It's all over the Bible. Listen, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Worship. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. Evangelism. Look at Psalm, don't look, I'll tell you. Psalm 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name, worship. Make known His deeds among the peoples, evangelism. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him, worship. Tell of all His wondrous works, evangelism. Glory in His holy name and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. There is this inherent reciprocal relationship between worship and evangelism which we need to grasp. And in the Great Commission, it's given in the context of worship. You don't need a seminar. You don't need a book on apologetics. You got it in worship. It should compel you out. First corrective. What about confidence? What confidence does the Lord Jesus Christ provide here? now you don't know me very well but i've been teaching evangelism basically since i became a christian i was converted in baltimore maryland a little bit digression here personal note i was converted in baltimore maryland by uh, an older couple who loved the lord and uh, broke my stiff neck with the gospel because they loved me and the very next time i met that couple they took me to a homeless shelter and said, well, you've got the gospel, now get up and give the gospel to others. Very next time. And I've been zealous for evangelism for the last however many years, it's 35 years or something, and taught it all over the place. You know what the biggest thing I hear from people is, "But pastor, I wouldn't know what to say. I don't have a a seminary education. I I don't know my Bible that well. I, I don't have all the answers that, you know, Somebody like Aaron Mungia has—he's a real dedicated apologist—and I, 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 I. You hear a recurring pronoun here? I, 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 What does Jesus tell you in the Great Commission? Your confidence doesn't come from you. It's to come from Him. And look at what he provides here. His power and his presence. Look first his power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Meditate on that for a few thousand years this afternoon before you come back for evening worship. What kind of power is that? It's the power that he provides for you as you go fulfill the Great Commission in Greek the words are emphatic as your pastor could tell you it's literally given to me the emphasis standing there is the resurrected Lord who has just conquered Satan death and hell and he declares that he has the authority necessary to do the unthinkable do you believe him that that has to be your confidence His power and His presence. Look look at the last phrase there, I am with you always. The word order there is also emphatic, it's I with you I am in the Greek. Translating loosely we would say, I myself am with you. I myself am with you, His power and His presence. It's connected to verse 18, right? All authority in heaven and earth, so it's a consequence, right? It's a conclusion to what having said that, having declared his authority, he now delegates it. It shows that what would otherwise be absolutely impossible now becomes gloriously possible, yea, an assured reality. You're in the sandals of the disciples as Jesus speaks these words to you. Think you're a handful of ragtag disciples on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. The religious establishment has just put your Lord and Savior to death. The political establishment is the Roman Empire, and they're bringing their boom to drop on you as well. And Jesus stands there and says, you see all those nations? Make them my disciples. Now, I don't know about you. But if I was there, I know what I would have said, if I can be honest with you. I wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have said it out loud to Jesus, but certainly in my heart of hearts, I probably would have said, yeah, right. Jesus says, You have my power and you have my presence. Be confident in me and be faithful. All right, we hasten to a close this morning. Just a couple of concluding comments. Wouldn't you love to know how the early church put into practice the Great Commission? I'd love to know. It's recorded for us by the Holy Spirit through Luke in the Book of Acts. Little shameless self-promotion here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, through the other most parts of the earth. And as you know, it goes from Jerusalem to Rome, from the most sacred city to the most secular city in 28 chapters and in between are about 17 cities. How the church fulfilled the Great Commission in the Book of Acts was a pattern of urban missions. I told you, shameless self-promotion. Now, some of you may be sitting here this morning and say, wow, you know, I wanna go with that guy and go to New York and, and, and evangelize and make disciples and win the lost for Jesus. Well, that's my second concluding point. We need manpower. Come to New York. We'd love to have you, all right? But I'm going to stop you. Not just because I love your pastors and, and are fond of you as a sister church, but Jesus says you will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem. What's the point? Start where you're at, right here. I'm sure there are multitudes of people, I met many of them yesterday at Food for Life, that do not know Jesus Christ. You have a mission field right outside that door. Thank God we have men, missionaries, that go to these nations. Thank God that you support them. I hope that you pray for us in New York City, but you, start where you're at. Your Jerusalem is... Chino, California, Ontario, California, Pomona, Rancho Cucamonga, San Bernardino. Spread the love of Christ where you live, where you work, where you study, and where you play. So, if Christianity depended on First Chino United Reformed Church, in the next generation? Would there be Christianity in the next generation? Let's all take a moment to briefly answer that prayer alone with the Lord. Father, we commit ourselves to you and ask that you would use us and that you would bless our efforts and that you might add to your church here in New York and in all the nations represented here today those that are being saved. And we ask it in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen and amen.